This is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement building show. You're on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, streaming live on the web at kpfk.org and always available on our website, voicesfromthefrontlines.com. I'm here remotely with my comrade and partner, Channing Martinez, the producer and co-host of the show. It's really good to listen to Nina Simone because she's my point of entry and exit uh, and orientation. So we we begin with Here Comes the Sun and we leave with I Did It My Way, both by Nina Simone. So hey everybody, what we're going to talk about today is I think the best overview I've heard of the grasp of what does it mean to be a pandemic and what's the science and some, I have to say, terrifying realities that both the system is not telling us and maybe some of us don't want to know. So I was very shaken up because I listened to a wonderful interview with a virologist teacher named Laurie Garrett, who wrote a book called The Coming Plague. And this is The Coming Plague that she talked about because it's so hard to get our head around, we're going to fortunately be able to play about a 22 minute entire interview that she did. But because I really do think that it's better to tell people ahead of time what somebody's going to tell them. And then after the person speaks to also tell them what they told them, I've tried to outline this. I've listened very carefully. So I'm going to try to summarize who she is, what she's saying, but in particular, in Black, Latino, Indigenous, movement circles. We're not often as good at science as we should be. And the science is so important because the oppressed communities are always going to bear not just the overwhelming brunt, but the genocidal brunt of every economic, political, and epidemiological crisis. So to the degree this is our national movement building show, and you're the national movement, Please use this. Please get on online. Become members on VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com. We're going to print this as a transcript afterwards. Please get your friends to listen to this show. All right, so here's the, some of the summaries of what Lori Garrett is trying to say. First of all, who is she? So she wrote her first best-selling book, The Coming Plague, Newly Emerging Diseases in a World Out of Balance, while splitting her time between the Harvard School of Public Health and New York Newsday. 
She was also a fellow at Harvard where she worked closely with the Emerging Diseases Group, a collection of faculty concerned about the surge in epidemics of previously unknown or rare viruses and bacteria. She's a member of the World Economic Forum Global Health Security. She's also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the National Association for Science Writers. Unfortunately, one of her articles is called Castro Care and Crisis, Will Lifting the Embargo Make Things Worse? Very sad because I was a big fan of hers, which I still am, until I saw that because the Council of Foreign Relations is an arm essentially of the U.S. ruling class and the U.S. State Department. So here she is talking about world pandemics, and she's going after the only country in the world that's making public health the central question and asking herself, will lifting the embargo make things worse? As if the United States has a right to have an embargo. And we're supposed to debate, you know, will slavery help or hurt the public health crisis? No, Laura Garrett, it's not your right. There's no right to have an embargo against Cuba and calling it Castro care, which it is, is just, you know, feeding the anti-communist stuff. But I like Castro care. It's fine with me. So with those parameters, this is a very important interview. And one thing to remember, I listen to scientists, business people. I don't have to agree with them philosophically if they're trying to tell me something that is true. Even if their political perspective is different about what they want to do with it, I'd rather do that than some, at times, leftists who have a lot of opinions, but not a lot of facts. All right, so now let's, I'm gonna summarize the interview um, with CNN that you're about to hear. KPFK is Southern California's only independent progressive radio station. We're non-commercial and listener supported. We don't take money from corporations, so they don't dictate our programming. That means we depend on you for funding. You help us keep the transmitter broadcasting our signal. Right now, we need your help. Please contribute today to help keep this show on the air. Go to kpfk.org, click Make a Pledge, and make your contribution today. So we're, we're going to play the entire conversation between Lori Garrett, Anderson Cooper, and Sanjay Gupta. I want to summarize ahead of time the concepts because there's a lot to wrap your head around and they'll give you a better guide to where this is going. Number one, this is a brand new microbe never seen on planet Earth before. The U.S. death toll is at 75,000 in the world and 316,000 so far. Two, there's a fragmented response all over the world determined by nation states, states, and cities. There needs to be a global solution to any pandemic that involves treating all 7.5 billion human beings on the planet. And yes, this is Eric speaking now, this is profoundly progressive and humanist to grasp it's not, it's all 7.5 people on the planet must be given a vaccine. Best case scenario, which she's saying, which are we are lights years away from seeing, and frankly will not happen, but against which all partial solutions must be judged. One. At least one vaccine must be a home run that has one dose, no booster, doesn't require for refrigeration, 
and can move around the planet even to the remotest regions. It can be administered orally with no needles, like a nasal spray or a patch. Again, the level of production must create 7 billion doses. Now, the next best scenario is we get out slowly all over the planet over 10 years and hope the virus does not mutate. What that means is viruses, you go after them in one way, but they have a life of their own. And if they start mutating, then the existing vaccine cannot fully treat it because it keeps changing and you have to get the, uh, the vaccine ahead of the virus's mutation. Here, this is very important. There must be a massive movement of wealth from rich to poor countries, which is terrific, Laurie Barrett, Garrett. But again, remember, Cuba is not a poor country. Cuba is a viable economy with a decent standard of living because of socialists. So you can't just help the people in the poor countries, but then overthrow the governments that are really trying to get rid of poverty. Now, the worst case is it becomes a permanent disease like HIV plaguing Homo sapiens. Now, analysis of the disease. Well, the final form is pneumonia. It seems like a cardiovascular event attacking the heart and lungs. Then secondly, that means that we're perceiving it to be a pneumonia. But what if it starts by attacking the heart's ability to even function? Now, there's hypertension, high blood pressure in 100% of the cases, I repeat, according to her, high blood pressure is a factor in 100% of the cases along with obesity and diabetes. What she points out is it's completely solvable with relatively few resources. The link between hypertension and poverty does not get appropriate attention. Absolutely, but now Eric speaking, but the link between poverty and black and indigenous people does not get any attention. Obviously, if all the white people were dying of hypertension, they might, might come up with a solution to solve it. But this country has a problem, which is even if it benefits white people, if it benefits black people as well, the white people don't want it. And this is really terrible, and it's why we have some hypertension. And obesity also related to police occupation, racism every minute of the day in your experience. Now, if we open up, this is back to Lori, every employee must be tested every day to decrease the problem. But even in four to five years, there'll be no airplanes, no meetings, no interactions, entire behavior will change. There's no getting back to normal. Even the new normal is a ridiculous underestimation of the problem. What she's saying is, it's not just Trump, whether he's the worst. We just are in massive denial about how long this is going to go on. And I'll get to another point. For the people, well, I'll get to the point already. The people that we work with were not making it all before the virus. I am terrified of what's going to happen. Now, economically, this is back to Lori, we're heading for a Great Depression. Now, whole cities have some cash reserves that will be exhausted very soon. Entire families have some cash reserves that will soon be exhausted. But tens of millions of Black, Latino, Indigenous, and low-income whites, they were living hand-to-mouth before the pandemic. Now, what I'm worried about is me speaking. 
if this pandemic continues, they're going to be forced back into the streets, either to hustle, where they'll be beat up, arrested, or die of COVID-19. Now back to Lori. I am stunned by the virus. It is shattering assumptions, how many different modes of transmission. And finally, she says, the CDC guidelines, a 17-page document must be read and memorized. And I hope we'll have later the link to that. I just already went on CDC COVID-19 guidelines. At least it's on their website. So that's my preface to what Laurie Garrett's going to say. Now let's listen to her. But Sanjay and I want to start with someone who has spent decades of her award-winning journalistic career studying the path of pandemics. Lori Garrett, author of the, uh, the book, The Coming Plague. Lori, thanks so much for, for being with us. If you could just kind of big picture your assessment, where we are with this virus right now. Well, the real problem at the moment is that we have very fragmented responses all over the world. Every country is doing its own thing. Uh, within countries, every state or province is doing its own thing. Every county is doing its own thing. We don't have a unified approach, and we don't have a unified sense of what is our strategic goal. So some countries are simply racing to come up with a vaccine, hoping to buy themselves time and solve their own local problems. Mm. But the, vi the virus will continue to circulate in the world, regardless of whether or not there's a vaccine unless we're committed to a strategic goal of really getting rid of the virus from the planet with appropriate implementation of vaccine for everybody, 7.5 billion human beings. You know, Vice President um, Pence said, I think it was about two weeks ago on an interview with uh, on Fox, he said, and I quote, I think by Memorial Day weekend, we will largely have this coronavirus epidemic behind us. We, when you and I spoke the other day, you talked about your best case scenario for this virus, which is 36 months, and that just to uh, get to just having it be 36 months required a whole bunch of what you called miracles happening. When you hear the vice you president know, saying two weeks, I mean, does that make or Memorial Day weekend? Does that make any sense to you? You know, here's the problem. Anderson, he set a certain goal. His strategic goal and apparently the White House strategic goal is it's behind us enough that we open up some businesses and we start getting the economy rolling again. We all want to get the economy rolling again. I mean, I was in a meeting today with IMF officials describing where this economy is headed on a global scale, and it is beyond desperate. They use phrases such as, this is the worst we've seen in more than 100 years. So, of course, we want to get the economy rolling, but when he says it'll be behind us by Memorial Day, that's not the virus behind us. That's whatever sense of fear is uh, dominating at the moment, and it won't solve the problem. It'll just let you open up some business enterprises. Can you just explain your best-case scenario, your 36-month best-case scenario? What does that look like? In that scenario, one of the more than 100 vaccines that are in various stages of development around the world right now turns out to be a home run. It works, it's effective, it only requires one dose, no booster. You don't have to refrigerate it, so it's easy to move around the planet and to get to remote areas. Uh, and it has no side effects of any kind or of any serious kind. 
It can be administered without using syringes or needles, so we don't have all those associated problems. Uh, so it's a nasal spray or uh, oral or perhaps a patch delivery. Uh, and we commit to a level of production that allows for seven plus billion doses and at an affordable price range that it makes it possible to administer it to everybody on the planet, regardless of their comparative wealth. And then that we deploy a gigantic army of vaccinators and educators at their side because you don't want to develop anti-vaccine responses, people who oppose it for misinformation reasons, and you deploy them all over the planet, to the top of the Himalayas, to the depths of the uh, you know, equatorial Amazon regions, and you vaccinate the entire world. In other words, somehow in 36 months, you accomplish what we did in more than a decade dealing with smallpox. Lori, obviously there's a lot of ifs in there and you know some of these vaccines that are being uh, talked about would require refrigeration which is why I'm sure you brought that particular point up. I mean is it binary with you either we do that and it all has to work perfectly or not? I mean is, there, is the other is the is the uh, alternative the worst case scenario? So there are two possible second stage possibilities. One is it takes a lot longer we go out years, decade perhaps, trying to slowly, incrementally vaccinate the planet, hoping the whole time that the virus isn't mutating into a form like flu does that requires us to develop yet another type of vaccine each year or each several years uh, out. And uh, we have to have a massive uh, program of moving wealth from rich countries to poor to finance ongoing efforts over a very long period of time. The worst case scenario is that this virus actually becomes endemic and it joins the ranks of HIV as a new lethal, horrible disease that is permanently plaguing Homo sapiens that didn't previously bother our species. That's uh, obviously, you know, it's, it's, you know, Laura, you and I have known each other a long time and, and, um, uh, you've you've been very prophetic on a lot of these things. Obviously, when you describe that, it's scary. I mean, it, it, is there is there some is there some middle ground here at all? Do you think, or something that we can be hopeful about, other than a vaccine? You know, in in terms of what can normalize life somehow. I do think that there may turn out to be some interesting things that we stumble upon along the way that we can't thoroughly anticipate right now. I mean, Sanjay, one thing that's very striking to me is that every day as more and more clinical information comes out, this virus looks more and more like a cardiovascular disease. Mm. You know, because its cause of death is pneumonia, we obviously think first of it as a respiratory, a pulmonary disease. But, gee, every single physician I talk to who's dealing with acute cases says 100% of them have hypertension, high blood pressure. They may have other things obesity, diabetes, and so on, but hypertension is a universal. Well, you know, hypertension is one of the cheapest and easiest interventions we have. We can, we can train somebody with no medical background at all in how to do a blood pressure test and manage to isolate and understand who's at risk if indeed that's a risk factor. If, you know, perhaps it's a marker for not being part of the medical system. You know, when we look at the link between hypertension and poverty, I would love to know what you think of this, Sanjay, because 
you see this all the time, but you look at the link between hypertension and poverty, and it's really about didn't get worked up, mm. didn't get the appropriate intervention. Well, how cheap is it to imagine that a city like Atlanta would do an all-out hypertension campaign? And would every single employer, along with perhaps taking temperatures daily of your employees, would also offer blood pressure tests for free. And if a person turns out to have high blood pressure, put them in for intervention and medication. Uh, that's just one example. There may be hundreds of things like that mm. that turn out to play a role and to help decrease the horror that's laid out before us. You know, what's interesting, Laurie, the, all the, the scenarios you talk about, all of them really show a belief that, that this will fundamentally change the way we Americans do things for a very long time. I mean, far more than 9-11, than you know, changed our lives, which it did. This, and I'm wondering, do you know what that change looks like? Like, what does going to work look like? What does going to, I don't know if going to a restaurant is even feasible, but what does that look like down the road? Well, Anderson, I think we're gonna get out four or five years from now. And, and there will be not a single aspect of our lives that's been unchanged. We, it's almost impossible to really fully envision what that will look like. But certainly, everybody's going to think twice about getting on airplanes. And that's going to be true five years from now. Everybody's going to think twice about whether that, you know, meeting is important to go to or can they just get a synopsis of it later. All sorts of interactions and behaviors that we've taken for granted will look different. And then you have to keep in mind that on top of everything else, we have not yet really felt the effect of the Great Depression that we're marching into. We, you know, people have lost jobs, but they still have some cash to cover the rent. They still have some ability to maneuver. And similarly, whole cities, such as where I am here in New York, still have cash reserves to address problems. But as this progresses, as we get further and further into the economic repercussions of this extraordinary pandemic, we're going to see that every single aspect of life is affected simply by, the, by virtue of the inability of governments to invest in change, the limitations in cash reserves for companies, and how they're going to approach their own innovations and developments going down the road. And when you look at it on a global scale, every single one of the major global institutions that the world has just kind of you know, taken for granted since World War II, whether it's the World Bank or World Health Organization and the UN system, or it's major international banking institutions, trade institutions, commodity exchanges, it's all going to change. Where it will end up, I'm not that good of a Cassandra. You've been, I mean, you wrote The Coming Plague, everyone should read this book, and you've been, you know, warning about uh, pandemics like this for decades. You've also done a lot of research on these kinds of viruses. Is this one surprising you, Lori, in terms of the virus itself, but also all the, the ripple effects? Absolutely. I'm stunned by this virus, and it seems almost every day there's something new that we find out about the virus that makes, you know, all the assumptions sort of get shattered yet mm -hmm. again. Um, I think the thing that's really striking about it is how many different modes of transmission there are. So, uh, you know, I, I don't want to throw out a term that you and I would use routinely without explaining it, but 
you know, you think of flu and you primarily worry about somebody coughing on you or about shaking hands with somebody who just sneezed on their hand, you know? Uh, and you think of, say, hepatitis and you're worried about being exposed to dirty needles. And, you know, you go down the list and most infectious diseases have a fairly finite range of ways that they can spread from one person to another. But this darn virus keeps surprising us. Every time we turn around, there's another mode of transmission. And there's another presentation. Who would have thought Kawasaki's disease would have been, uh, that we see in pediatric presentation, would have been part of a COVID, you know, uh, symptomology? Who would have thought that it was um, oral fecal transmission and that this whole notion of washing hands would have so many layers of significance to it? I think we're, we're, I'm just, I'm just staggered and surprised. I'm surprised at how hard it is to define what the incubation time is for this virus. It seems that in some social settings, it's very short. And in others, it's quite long. That People can be asymptomatically infected, have no idea they're carrying virus, and transmit it to other people for two weeks, three weeks. Uh, and, and yet, in other settings, it may be only a couple of days. Hmm. On and on and on down the list, it's full of surprises. In, in all your research on pandemics, all your thinking about the possibility of what it might look like here in the United States, did you ever imagine that the federal government's response would be what it has been? That, you know, we just learned today the White House rejected the CDC's recommended detailed guidance on reopening the country, which they asked for. Dr. Burks sort of put a happy face on it and said, oh, well, you know, the guidelines are still being prepared and this is just part of the editing process. Uh, we know they wanted to stop the coronavirus task force, but then the president decided, well, no, because it seems really popular, and he's talked about the ratings of it. And it seems like the administration essentially doesn't want much testing. The president has said that it looks bad for his administration, it looks bad for, for us. Uh, if there's a lot of testing and the numbers go up, there's been questions, you know, some have raised questions about the death toll, that it's not accurate, that it's, that it's overblown. Did you ever, I mean, what do you make of the federal government's response here? There's a lot to unpack there. Let me first say, if you have not taken the time to look at the CDC guidelines, which are available, you can see them on the internet. Yeah, they're not crazy. It's a 17-page document that I think every single school superintendent will be very appreciative of. Every single employer will find good uh, information there that will help you. Anybody trying to reopen a hair salon or a restaurant, there's very specific detail. If this happens, do this. If this happens, do that. Now you can proceed to phase two. Now you can proceed safely to phase three. It's an incredibly detailed roadmap that that is being held up uh, and that there's indications that the intent is to block it, although Dr. Burke said, no, no, we're just amending it, um, is, is astounding. I mean... Uh, the number one difference, and I'm sure, Sanjay, you feel this every day, the number one difference is that in every single outbreak I've ever been in that was of any substance at all, whether it was on our domestic soil or overseas, the CDC has been in charge. And we have had daily briefings. We have had, you know, moments where the director spoke to us from the, the operations center and we all saw those camera images throughout the uh, Ebola epidemic. 
that wasn't an epidemic here in America. There were a couple of cases in America, but it wasn't an American epidemic. It was a West African epidemic. And yet we saw Command Central in Atlanta routinely. And similarly, CDC operatives working overseas held routine briefings both for local government representatives, for the UN system, and for journalists in whatever location they were working in. Now, where is the CDC? Why has all the authority of the CDC been stripped? What is it that the White House thinks is so dangerous about having the CDC, that incredibly deep bench of expertise, mm -hmm. talking directly to the American people? And, and I don't what, understand. What, and what have you come up with? Because, I mean, I, I think you're making a strong case, and I think a lot of people uh, would agree with you that the CDC has been sidelined here. I mean, you know, Richard Besser was out there out front during H1N1. Tom Frieden was out front during Ebola. And now we're not seeing the CDC hardly at all. What, what sense does it make to sideline some of the best epidemiologists anywhere in the world? You know, I can only come up with a couple of possibilities. And, of course, there's widespread speculation um, to answer exactly what the question you pose. Um, two stand out for me. The first is they did goof on the test. They developed a very bad contaminated test, and it let down the American people. It let down local health departments. And so there must be a sense of, well, they have to pay a price for that error. Hmm. On the other hand, why was the, the, the job of coming up with a test enough to test millions and millions of people put on a tiny laboratory inside the CDC that was understaffed and, you know, not designed for commercial production. The other possibility is that what scientists at the CDC would be saying right now would run contrary to Mike Pence and, and Donald Trump saying, we'll be open by Memorial Day. I mean, it, punishing the CDC is punishing the American people. I mean, that, that's the thing. I mean, those guys, oh. my kids go on that website to, to look at, uh, you know, these guidelines and things like that about schools and summer camps. It is really important information, Anderson, that, you know, worry that people aren't getting. Yeah. Can, well, can you, you know, Lord, uh, you go ahead, Lori. Oh, I would just say it goes beyond the loss of the information to the American public, to your kids, Sanjay. It goes to every state department. <laughs> Every city health department, every county health right. department is, relies on the CDC to send out the guidances to help them figure out what they should do. I mean, very few local health departments are substantially enough funded and have a deep enough bench to be able to analyze a brand new microbe that's never been seen on planet Earth before and figure out what's the best way to respond to it, how, what information they should give their mayor or their city council, or their governor, and what kind of guidance is appropriate to take the public through it. And to, to not have the information coming down from the well-respected CDC at the top is depriving every single locality of a kind of database and wisdom that they absolutely depend upon. In terms of testing, I know you, you know, the numbers there's, there's numbers all over the place of people, what people think are needed to be testing. You said that testing needs to be smart, targeted. Can you lay out what you think an effective testing strategy looks like in, in your mind? Yeah, because we rarely have a good diagnostic in any outbreak. In fact, if I have one complaint 
about every single outbreak is that diagnostics get put at the bottom of the list. And with diagnostics, you have two key things you're trying to figure out. One, is this person infected and in need of medical care and isolation? And two, what's going on with this epidemic? What is it? How big is it? Who's giving it to whom? How do I, it, where, the, where should be the points of intervention? And again, especially now when we are in a time of economic depression and every single jurisdiction has limited resources to address the problem with, and the federal government is not doling out cash to every single health department across America. So what you need is a kind of testing that is designed to answer appropriate policy questions. For example, if I were the governor of Indiana right now or Nebraska, I, it would be very, very important for me to know what percentage of all transmissions in my state are a result of the meatpacking industries in my state and what is the primary way that the virus is spreading within those settings. How can I maintain the economy that is the meat industry of those two states while at the same time minimizing how many human beings in the general population and in the worker population get infected. So I would want the health department to do some very targeted studies that answer questions like, one, how many of the employees are infected? And I want independent data, not company data, because I need to make choices for the whole population. Two, I'd want to know how many of those workers' families have become infected. Hmm. Let's do some snapshot studies of the families. And three, how has it generalized beyond there? Are there parts of the community we can look at to, to determine larger spread? And I think one of the things that people misunderstand the most about testing, when the mantra goes out, we want testing, 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 is how, how do you actually do that testing? There's this sort of vague imagination that employers will have hundreds and hundreds of test kits and every single time a worker comes to the job, somebody will test them and they'll have the results. This is a total fantasy. We will never have such a thing, not unless somebody invents a test that's as quick and cheap as a litmus test is for testing acidity. And we don't have that. So it's going to have to require that employers come up with smart ways to figure out how do I take a kind of targeted census that gives me a snapshot view on a daily or weekly basis of what's going on in my workforce. And how can I, if I run a school, do the same thing? Or if I want to know if it's safe to reopen a university? Yeah. Uh, Lord Garrett, it's sobering to talk to you, but it's essential information. And uh, I, I, I so believe in just being armed with facts and truth and in a time like this and not happy talk. And I appreciate you, uh, your, your candor. Thank you very much, Lord Garrett. Digital services cost KPFK real money. KPFK is more than just what you hear on the radio. At kpfk.org, you can listen to our live stream along with on-demand content whenever you like. Nearly every show we air can be found on our audio archives page. These digital services are free for you, but they cost us more money each year. Please consider making a donation, or better yet, become a Sustainer Circle member now. Go to kpfk.org and click support. Thank you. 
So, hey, everybody, this is Eric Mann responding to Lori Garrett. You're on KPFK 90.7 FM and 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, and you can always give money to the station at 818-985-5735. You don't have to wait for a fund drive. The station needs money all the time. If you can imagine during COVID-19, all the pressures on the institution. You know, I, I think during the fund drives, you know, it's so much 818-985-5735. We need it, we need it, we need it. But if we could sort of spread the fund drives throughout the year, integrate it with the programming, which is what Aniel is trying to get us to do, Aniel Fields, that this would help all of us. So I urge you in the middle of this COVID-19, including many of you I understand, are probably having restricted income consider a contribution now, calling 818-985-5735. So many thoughts, but let me try to articulate the impact of Laurie Garrett's amazing work on my brain. The first thing is just how impressive she is. It just shows how important it is to be clear. She studied this thing so many gazillion times that she can clarify every point. There was not one point of hesitation. People think it's being a good speaker. Of course it's being a good speaker, but Louis Pasteur was not surprising who, who dealt with, uh, uh, I think invented penicillin, I hope I'm right. He said, fortune favors the prepared mind. So sure, there's luck, but the prepared mind is what Laurie Garrett had for us. So here's several thoughts. The first thing is, in all this discussion of we, the world, even 7.5 billion, here's a few facts. The United States is a world empire with 800 military bases of occupation all over the world. The United States is going to deny sovereignty to virtually every country in the world, except the European states that share its imperialist perspective. The United States has been the greatest cause of violence in the world, which is what Dr. King said. So there are African and Asian and Latin American countries trying, such as Venezuela, to solve this, but they have been hampered, they have been boycotted, they have been attacked, sanctions against them. So we can't discuss a worldwide response. If any socialist, any anti-imperialist, any progressive movement in the third world is suppressed by the US CIA, and yes, the Council of Foreign Relations, and yes, the State Department and the US military. So that's the first thing. Let's not just you know talk about how wonderful the world is, unfortunately. The world is divided into oppressor and oppressed nations. And we had hoped by now there'd be some improvement. There isn't. Second, I don't care if it's one note, it's the US white settler states one note. The anti-Black sentiment in this country is so profound, so built into its DNA, as well as anti-Indigenous, that you can't have a conversation without the anti-Black subterfuge being in there that they know about. Why don't we have testing all over the world? Why don't we have a network of great hospitals? Why don't we have free medical care? Why don't we have free everything? The U.S. imperialist state can actually afford a lot of that stuff. But because black people would get it, I swear, a lot of white people don't want it and fought against it. See the conservative whites in the South. 
The second thing we have to understand is that U.S. capitalism and imperialism is so propped up by the crack cocaine of federal funds, such as the Federal Reserve and the Department of Treasury, in two months, they can't last two months without billions and billions and trillions of dollars. Think about that. The poorest of the poor, of course, can't last two months, but they might last better. They can at least go to their friend's house and eat rice and beans, and I mean it in the most serious way. These capitalist companies are parasitic to the point that they can't do anything without their profits being reinforced by the government. The result of this is that the drug companies can't produce a vaccine that's cost-effective because they're profit-making entities. How are we going to get 7.5 billion doses all over the world if we have a for-profit drug companies? Now, of course, what's going to happen is the U.S. government may have to subsidize the drug companies instead of simply saying, no, the government is going to do the tests. We're not going to give it to private companies. What I'm very worried about right now is black malnutrition, anti-black police brutality, black homelessness, black hypertension, black starvation in the United States and Africa. I think the United States is going to go through some transition to make it a more fair country at the top. There will be some, I hear Biden's talking about reducing some of the student loans, a new network of hospitals. Yeah, this has exposed the complete catastrophe of our government, both parties. But I'm telling you, one third to half of the people in the United States will still not benefit because it's an apartheid government. It's two worlds, not even two cities, but two worlds. And I live happily in the third world. That's where I live every day. That's where I work every day. And we who are working in Black and Latino and Asian Pacific Island and Indigenous communities and caring about people in the third world, we have to do a lot of talking about what are the demands we want to bring on the Democratic Party. And that'll be another conversation in the next uh, show. The last thing is all this anti-China bashing must stop. China had a virus. China most likely panicked, and yes, covered up for a week or two, the full extent of it as it tried to figure out, because it's surrounded by the United States, because it's defensive, and because governments have their own problems. Then China announced the problem and then moved aggressively to stop it. Trump wants to blame China, that he's had months to do it. He didn't have to wait for China. Everybody knew there was a virus in China. He didn't have to wait for the Chinese government to tell him. The whole World Health Organization knew there was a virus. Joe Biden is also anti-China. The movement must say, hands off China, no war with China, no trade war with China. We need full cooperation in the middle of this pandemic. And the U.S. government is the primary cause of the problem. We cannot, in the movement, support domestic progressivism and support U.S. imperialism abroad. And I think a lot of people who are former socialists, former communists, who now hide behind progressivism, 
They've lost their anti-imperialism. They don't even like China, which I think is a much more advanced country than the United States. They've lost their anti-imperialist soul. And those of us who were in the movement from the beginning or the, you know, since 1492, and those of the young people today, we have to make anti-imperialism the centerpiece of any international solutions that are then gonna come back to third world communities inside the United States. Laurie Garrett said you need a strategy. She has a good one, but you need an anti-imperialist strategy to allow her tactical strategy to have the chance for viability. I think that is the most important point that anyone's made on any media in since this since the beginning of this pandemic in the United States. And I like that the point that you said earlier that Cuba is not a poor country. There's so I think I've shared like 10 or 15 articles on Cuba alone on Facebook on what they're doing and one of them the title says Cuba doctors served in 37 countries with COVID-19. You know what's astounding about this article is that the United States military budget is just under a trillion dollars and I don't actually know what the budget for the entire country is but given that they're giving out stimulus packages there was just a stimulus package passed this Friday for $2 trillion. Um, and so the question raises for me when I'm sharing all these articles about Cuba, and we are talking about how do you have an anti-imperialist you know, strategy for COVID-19, Cuba with less than, less than two, three trillion dollars in their budget is in 37 countries. More than 37 countries since this article has been shared they were responsible for the actual, the lowering of the numbers in Italy, the lowering of the numbers in France. They went to Belize, they went to Barbados, they went to China, they've gone to just about every country. How is it possible that such a small country can do so much with such little money? And yet here goes the United States and the president pontificating on how great it's doing. We're gonna get over this by next weekend and you know that that that's one point the other point is that i've been reading the new yorker and we were me and eric were discussing how is africa doing during this pandemic um so there's this great article by gina moore and it is entitled what african nations are teaching the west about fighting the coronavirus and what's interesting is, despite everything you might think about Africa, they're actually doing very well. And there's even a quote in here, which I'll read. So I'll read this just to get, the, yeah, get the point. Rwandan officials respond to their first coronavirus cases by tracing, isolating, and testing contacts people whom confirmed and suspected carriers might have encountered before realizing they were, in fact, COVID-19 patients. Five days after the first case were confirmed, commercial flights were halted. Two days later, the country was locked down, both to limit the spread of the disease and to ease the tedious work of contact tracing. By the end of April, health workers had tested more than 20,000 people and conducted two random community surveys, a method for guarding 
against a, the bias of testing too narrowly, which might artificially deflate case figures. We did not find any community transmission of COVID-19 in Rwanda, which was quite good news for us. Sabine N. Sansimana, an epidemiologist who heads Rwanda Bio Biomedical Center, which also houses the National Reference Laboratory that processes COVID-19 tests, said. So far, we are at the phase of containing the epidemic in Rwanda, which means that we know who has the disease. Now, later in the article, it because you know the Rwanda and a few of the African countries are really trying to be pro, uh, um, how should I say it, uh, uh, reflective on their role in the world, right? They do give credit to the United States and Europe, saying that basically African countries don't have the resources to actually cure this disease. They don't have ICU beds, right? There is a whole problem with the medical system in Africa where it is privately owned and not publicly owned. And some of that is due to the United States and the influences of Europe, um, European countries and colonialism. But they are still relying on those countries to figure out what the cure to this disease is eventually. But one thing for sure that this article, that I got out of this article is that the when they first heard about the disease, they basically started shutting down the country right away because they already had experience with Ebola. The Ebola outbreak in 2018, um, the Ebola outbreak in the 2014, and the Ebola outbreaks way before that. And you know, not surprisingly, Africans, Nigeria in particular, actually came up with a cure for Ebola, right? The voice you're hearing is Kenny Martinez, the producer of Voices from the Frontline and the co-host. You're on KPFK 90.7 FM and 98.7 M in Santa Barbara. Streaming on the web at kpfk.org. And do check us out and go on our website, voicesfromthefrontlines.com. Please, if you click on there, you're going to get a terrific weekly newsletter that Channing and I put out. And also, check us out on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Apple, and all those good, what else, Jenny? And tune in and anything else you can think about. <laughs> good, 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 good. So, so one thing, stay on the issue of, you know, it's funny that they said they give credit to the United States, but given the United States did uh, 300 years of the trans-African, uh, trans transatlantic slave trade. You know, one thing that's very sad <clears throat> is that when I was in college and I was saying to somebody, the reason I want to study different governments and systems is because I don't believe there's just one system and you have to learn all the different ones, including, of course, socialism and communism. But the United States will not let socialism and communism breathe. It's at war with it. So that's why the Cubans are still blockaded. That's why uh, Patrice Lumumba was killed by the Belgians and the US. You know, that's why uh, Gaddafi was overthrown in Libya and Mossadegh was overthrown in Iran. So the point is, we got a problem. We got a problem which is, the thing that's worse about imperialism is it denies self-determination to people inside Africa and inside the United States. So 
keep going, Channing. You're on a roll. I think that's the last point. The, the main point here is that because they made so many preparations and did so many tests for Ebola, they already had the structure when the actual disease hit Africa. And so the numbers in Africa right now are low. Talking, you know, in some of the worst case scenarios in Northern Africa and Libya um, and Egypt and those Northern countries, those countries are somewhere in the hundreds of cases, right? You know, 100, 200 people at maximum. But in a place like Uganda, in a place like the Congo, in places like Rwanda, they're talking, you know, 10 cases, five cases, 15 cases, 20 cases. Um, and, you know, the, the reporter in this article starts by giving us a view of some of their procedures, right? Right when you land in the airport, if you're coming from an international flight, you're directed to a separate a whole separate section of the airport and quarantine, you're stood in line, you're tested for COVID-19, your temperature is taken, everything is washed, and then they get all of your contact information and they get the place that you're staying in the country and they monitor you the whole time that you're in the country. And if you by chance uh, have COVID-19, then you're quarantined right away. By contrast, that reporter came back around May 15th and they came back to a European state and no one cared. They didn't ask where you'd been. They didn't <laughs> test you. They didn't care. You could have COVID-19 and you could be spreading it within the 20 minutes you're in the whole, the first, uh, the airport, right? Um, and they don't care, right? And so, you know, when um, Lori says there's no unified strategy, I think we have a lot to learn from these African nations. They have a unified strategy. Most of them, except for maybe five of them, are actually doing testing right when you land and cross their borders. And they're keeping track of who has the virus. They might not be able to solve the problem, but they can definitely isolate the problem. Well, you know, every time one of us speaks, the other one says, that was great. But it was great. We like each other and we work together for so much. That was a terrific presentation, Channing. And in our last two minutes, a couple of thoughts. The Strategy Center has very deep ambitions and very limited capacity. This is an amazing show. This level of science needs to get out to especially low-income Black, Latino, Indigenous, working-class communities. I think this is the best science show I've heard because we started with one of the best scientists, Laurie Garrett, and then Channing and I did a lot of study. It took me hours and hours to prepare for this show. We need you, one, to go on voicesfromthefrontlines.com and register by clicking it on. Two, can you write an email to your friends with the link? Uh, first of all, today is Tuesday at three o'clock. It'll be up on our website by tomorrow. Could you send a personal email with commentary, starting with Channing at the strategycenter.org and Eric at Voices from the Frontlines and make your own listserv of 10, 15, 20 friends. Come on, Frank Durrell, I know you can do this. To our friends in Dream Defenders, to our friends in Indigenous Environmental Network, to our friends in Calza Husta and Ella Baker, Center for Human Rights, to our friends and community coalition, we need you to get this out because this this radio show 
is doing a lot of work. It's called your National Movement Building Show. But we need your help to build a greater national audience, especially of the people doing things. So to summarize, it's an international problem. The United States is the greatest international danger. The movement must stop the attacks on China. The movement must be asking for specific prioritization of Black and Latino communities in terms of resources. And the movement should keep learning the science because Africa is teaching Europe and Black and Latino communities, indigenous communities can teach the white settler state. This is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement building show. This is Channing Martinez, producer of Voices from the Front Lines and co-host of Voices from the Front Lines. It's been great having you on, and I am looking forward to your emails. That, uh, we'll see you next week. All power to the people. A life that's full of travel each and every highway and more, much more than this. I did my way. Yes, regrets. I've had a few, but then again. 